All right, well, I think we're going to get started here. We've uh, Worship went a little long this morning, so uh, I may go a little long as well, and I apologize, apologize if I do. Uh, my name is Philip, and uh, we're pleased to have you all here for the fourth session, the third sola, and this is Soli Deo Gloria. Uh, my contact information is right there if you have any comments, complaints, or otherwise. Uh, the slideshow will be available next week. Um, I've given you a handout. Uh, you can follow along with that. Uh, so I, I have two goals today, really. Uh, two goals for us. Um, the first one is to uh, really challenge you uh, and to speak truthfully about the Word of God and uh, to completely, uh, thoroughly, and sometimes annoyingly ingrain in you all uh, one one key phrase, um, one main point, so that when uh, Raj goes home this weekend, uh, he'll remember one thing if he forgets everything else. And so uh, that that's my goal today. Uh, those are the two goals I have. Uh, so with that, I'd like to say a word of prayer very briefly, and then we'll begin. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for those men in the past who have studied your word diligently and have sought to give honor to you alone, above themselves and above man. So help us as we live our lives to do the same, to give honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is from Him alone that salvation comes. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, So I want to briefly remind you of this tree uh, that Clifford so nicely gave us two weeks ago, just to point out where we are. 1517 is the time the history, the context that we're speaking about. Uh, and so uh, keep that in your mind as, as we move on. We're talking about 500 years ago. Uh, here are the list of solas uh, that we're going to do. Uh, we've already gone over Fide and Scriptura. Uh, Clifford and Dave gave good presentations of that. Uh, and so the phrase that uh, you might get tired of by the end is, we are saved, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. And that includes all of the themes. So, in review very quickly, sola fide, the material cause of the Reformation, what the content of the Reformation was really all about. Uh, You see the Scripture there, you see a couple of quotes. I want to touch on those. I do want to say, briefly again, that is a question of the Gospel. There's a question for each sola that it really answers, and this one was the gospel. What is the true gospel? Is it works and faith? Is it faith alone? And obviously, it's faith alone. That's what the Reformers said. Uh, Last week, sola scriptura, we have the formal cause, really the blueprint of the Reformation. And so, we have a quote there that Luther believed that the evidence of scripture and binds us. That is our our sole authority. And so this was a question of authority. If the first was a question of the gospel, this one is a question of authority. And so what's our authority? Is it the Pope? Is is it uh tradition? Is it a council? No, it's it's the scripture alone. Though those are those other things are useful, but scripture alone is our authority. And so today uh we come to Soli Deo Gloria. Uh and and what I want to point out uh here is that um Really, this gets at three questions we'll cover later, but I want, I want you to be thinking about a couple of things. And one of those things is, is it God's life, honor, and fame or mine? Really, this is what the Reformers are, are interested in. Is it God's life, fame, and honor or mine? And, and I have a warning up here. You can read that as I talk. 
really, as I was studying, <laughs> I became very convicted and thinking about the work of all the reformers and thinking about the implications of this time period and about all five of the solas and how they work together and how my life should be one that honors God and glorifies Him at all times. And so um, I found myself on my knees several times asking God for His grace in my life and for my family and asking that really he continue to work in, in all of our lives uh, as we seek to honor him in every aspect. And that, that is a difficult thing, brothers and sisters. In every aspect of our lives, uh, God would like to be glorified. Uh, and so, uh, to the glory of God alone. Um, this is that other slide, and I picked out the highlights here. Um, so, how do I honor God? That, that's really the first question. Uh, in light of the solas, and this is like an untimely born <laughs> uh, presentation because it, it's really a summation of the other four. And yet uh, we, we want to look at uh, on the foundation of those, on the foundation of those things. Remember, this is the final cause. We'll get there in a second. But on the foundation of those others, how do I honor God? And that's what the reformers were asking. And, and that really brings up a second question that I talked about a second ago. Do I desire honor and fame for myself? Do I, in my actions, the reformers asked, and, and we'll get to the categories, who gets the honor? Whose reputation is at stake? And then this brings up the third question. At its deepest level, do you love me? That is the question that God is asking us through these. Do you love me? I, I remember if you all were here for Bob's sermons uh, on Revelation, in the church at Ephesus, they had left their love. And so God is asking us in this, do you love me? That's the root question. And so my main point today, which I really hope that uh, you'll get annoyed of me saying and that it will be ingrained in your minds as you leave here, as you go to work, um, is how do I honor God? I honor God with all of my being all of the time. Let me say that again. I honor God with all of my being all of the time in every aspect of my life, no section is partitioned. No area is off limits. I honor God with all of my being, all of the time. So, in thinking about, um, in thinking about soli deo gloria, what, what we need to do, I think, is establish very briefly what glory is. Uh, glory, in the Old Testament... It's used, the word is kavod, it's used 200 times, and it refers to, and what I want to highlight here is the power, splendor, and holiness of God amongst his people. In the New Testament, uh, it's used 166 times, the word doxa is, and it, it denotes the praiseworthiness and honor of God. And so, really, um, we think about, when we think of glory, I, I think a good example to use is a reception. I work in a public policy consulting firm, and one of the things we do is we hold receptions in honor of someone. And so a lot of my job is making uh, invitations in honor of such and such elected official, the mayor of Dallas, Chief Brown of Dallas. And so that, uh, that reception focuses on honoring or giving glory to that person. It talks about all the great things they do. It, it talks about the character of that person. So when we think of glory, I think a good way for me to describe it is to think of a reception in someone's honor. Think about all those things that, that serve to build up the reputation of them. 
And so that's what we're doing when we're, when we're giving the glory to God. We're building up his reputation. How can our life be lived? How can everything we do, the reformers asked, whether that's church life, family life, personal life, um, be lived to the glory of God? So as we move on, um, I, I want to say that we looked at the formal cause and, and we looked at um, the material cause for the Reformation. This is the final cause. Like I said, the summation of all things. Uh, and what I'd really like to talk about um, specifically uh, before we get here is some scripture. And I'm going to read to you and, and let you see in the scriptures what the Reformers picked out. And, and this is a compilation of verses, but it flows very beautifully. Uh, so I'm going to blank the screen and, and you can just listen for a second. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And then Romans the, the beautiful passage, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I think you see, and those are from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Peter 4, Revelation 1, 6, 2 Peter 3, 1, Revelation 7, 12, and Romans 11, of course, 36. And so you see a scriptural precedent. It's throughout the Bible that our lives and, and what we do is to be lived for the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. What does it say? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Very good. Now, many of you know that. That's great. Uh, so, Luther, he approaches um, the Catholic Church. And one of his main disputes is with a body of teaching. And, and this is what's described. He describes it. And it's a little confusing, so let me break it down. Uh, the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. The theology of glory taught by the Catholic Church said that, yes, Christ gets some glory for our salvation, but the saints also have a part in that. Mary has a part in that. And most, most, uh, the worst part is that the sinner also had some glory in that. So the praise, the outflow of our um, object of praise is not Christ alone. And Luther had an issue with that, and that was the theology of glory. That's why it's a little confusing. We're on soli deo gloria. But the Catholic Church taught a theology of glory, he called it. In, in contrast, and this really goes with uh, Fide and with all of the others, and see, that's one thing I want to emphasize, that all of the others flow like a pyramid into the capstone of soli deo gloria. And so the theology of the cross simply said, no, <laughs> like our theme today, Christ alone gets the glory. He's the one whose reputation should be built up because of these things in our lives. No one else. Uh, an important work uh, for Luther was The Liberty of a Christian Man, published in November of 1520. 
And in this, once again, he summarized a lot of the feelings and, and the theological insights into, into a small treatise. Uh, and let me uh, briefly summarize that for you. I'll read, I'll read a couple of points here um, from, from him, and then I'll summarize it. He said, And so it will profit nothing that the body should be adorned with sacred vestments or dwell in holy places or be occupied in sacred offices or pray, fast, abstain from certain meats, or do whatever works can be done through the body and in the body. On the other hand, it will not at all injure the soul that the body should be clothed in secular clothing, should dwell in secular places, should eat and drink in the ordinary fashion, should not pray aloud, and should leave undone all the things above mentioned which may be done by hypocrites. What he is doing there is breaking down the divide of the sacred and the secular. Really, beginning hundreds of years earlier, there began to be a distinction between those who were not clergy and those who were, and those who didn't what we would call normal jo- jobs, you know, shovel the manure or, or clean the streets or work as a tax collector. There was a division, and so they were looked at as second-class citizens. And what Luther is trying to do is remove the necessity of monasticism by stressing that the essence of Christian living is serving God in our calling. And that's what this treatise does. It brings together all of these theological insights, his years of study into this small treatise, and yet... This, from this, again, flow multitude of applications. Uh, every person, he stresses in this later, not in what I read, every person is a priest to God, and therefore every aspect of my life is worshipful to God, whether I'm called to be a priest or whether I'm called to sweep the streets. He says that in that I can glorify God. In that job, I have worth. And so that's an important point of his, made in the liberty of a Christian man. Um, and and I, I just uh, talked about the stress of the priesthood that he has. And so, once again, as we move into uh, the, the actual points, some, some low-level things, I want you to keep in mind this main point. And it's that they wanted to honor God. The Reformers sought to honor God with all of their being, all of the time, whether in church life, in family life, or in personal life. <clears throat> so, as we move on, we, we see a uh, reform of theology. And so, uh, we've talked about some of the things fide and scriptura. However, we really want to talk, talk about three main categories today, the first of which is theology. They reformed worship. So the reform of worship under the reform of theology. Uh, the recovery of the gospel, they realized, so in justification, uh, in faith alone, would lead to a reform and recovery of true worship. Uh, and let me list the ways. The word of God has to have a central place in worship. Sounds funny, sounds obvious to many of us at CBC. We, we have a focus during our meetings of the word of God. And yet that wasn't so at the time of Luther and before. Uh, worship must be conducted under that. Worship must be conducted in the vernacular, the common language. Oftentimes the liturgy was read, in, and it was always, it was a practice of the church to lead it read it in a different language so you'd be sitting there i'd be up here speaking german or something and you ha- you would you would become i mean what good is that paul says when talking about tongues if you don't understand how is that edifying and so that's the first point not only would worship be conducted in the vernacular but bible reading they said had to be conducted in the vernacular as well 
I mean, it seems obvious, but once again, Bible readings were not done in the common language, and, and that produced really a, a set of um, congregants that were uh, uneducated with regard to the Bible. Not only could they not read, but shoot, they couldn't even hear. They couldn't even listen to it. Um, also, really, they, they put a focus on expository preaching. And, and for example, Zwingli, when he announced in uh, January 1st, 1519, that he was going to exposit, uh, preach through Matthew in an expository way that set a foundational pattern for years to come and even down into our day where they would preach through books of the Bible in the common language which would educate the congregants as well as the society and community of believers. And so uh, this led to, and, and my last point on uh, on worship was this led to really a reform of structure of churches uh, as funny as it sounds the architecture of the church changed what was central before does anyone know in the catholic churches what is central the altar, the altar. and what became central the pulpit that's right they changed to the pulpit central and that in that respect many new churches were structured as an auditorium because when you're going to be preaching and you're preaching the Word of God, you want people to hear it. So even, and I bring that out, is not a funny point, but something that we don't think of because, you know, as um, many things change when our thinking and our theology changes. And so the structure of the building changed as well. Uh, praise. They said praise must be biblical and congregational. And, and I think we try to emphasize that here. And this, again, goes back to the priesthood of the believers. Look, worshipers are not spectators. As much as they be, had become then, they wanted to change it. And one of the ways they did that, and this is going to sound crazy, when, when I was reading this, um, I was shocked. But singing was one of the main ways they wanted to reform. So in a typical um, worship service, you'd have scripture reading in a different language. You'd have a worship liturgy read in a different language. And then you'd have a choir come up and sing, probably in a different language as well. Um, they'd sing in different songs. I'm not even sure. I didn't do enough research on that to be able to um, speak on that definitively. But it would be a choir of monks who would come up. But no, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these men wanted to restore congregational singing. And so, um, for example, uh, Luther's first hymn book came out in 1524, Martin Bucer's in 41, and Calvin's in 62. And so they placed, and that was their way of expressing their inward worship to the Lord. And so, uh, on a brief side note, I challenge us all, myself, um, to not just become spectators in worship. And we'll talk about that later. But to use our singing, especially for the women who, uh, in our congregation, that's one way for us all, women especially, to express their worship to the Lord vocally as a group. And, and we can bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ through that. Uh, the work, and sorry, fourth, so we're still on reform of theology. The sacraments must be restored to their biblical simplicity. Um, this is crazy again, you know. Baptism was simplified to water poured in the name of the Holy Spirit. It had become a complicated, convoluted process and ritual that was totally unbiblical. I mean, at one point, I believe I read they were making the sign over the cross of the water, dipping it in the water, and there. Yes, comment. Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll finish in a second, and then I'm kind of on a time schedule here. But yeah, yeah. Go ahead. 
That's good. Yeah, that plays right into it. Yeah, bringing it down. The focus was bringing it down to a congregational level so that all men could participate. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to just... (laughs) Okay, all right, thanks. Um, And so the Lord's Supper was a spiritual meal. They they began to pull, pull back to the Bible. And so the Lord's Supper became spiritual again, not a literal sacrifice offered on the altar in front of the congregation. Um, and, and lastly, uh, laity were able to receive both of the both of the cup and the wine, the bread and the wine, the cup and uh, the bread. It, it was so that at one point the clergy were the only ones able to receive both. And, and that is once again, it's just a return to biblical simplicity. You read in Corinthians, um, and you see both uh, the cup and the bread emphasized. And so they wanted to return to the biblical scriptures. Fifth, the work of the Holy Spirit was given precedence over forms. Forms, rituals, and ceremonies had become basically commonplace instead of simplistic, basic scriptural teaching. Uh, For example, um, the Genevan liturgy began with an expression of dependence on the Holy Spirit and a call for his help during the services. That's important. Um, Instead of depending on man, instead of in some way giving glory to man, we want to recognize the Trinity in every aspect of our worship. Uh, the emphasis was placed back on the heart, and especially, I think, Luther and Calvin lashed on to John 4.21 in speaking about uh, the woman who he talks about, where is true worship? Well, worship is in spirit and in truth. So, they wanted to reform theology. They also wanted to reform uh, family life. And so, all of my being all of the time, remember, that's, that's our broad theme. How can I honor God with all of my being all of the time? Well, I can do that by, first of all, restoring biblical simplicity to my worship. I can do that by restoring biblical principles to my family life. Uh, the passion, what I want to emphasize here is to the passion f- the reformers had that came from. Remember, I think it was the first session or the second one when we talked about the study that luther did y'all remember that his doctoral work he went over hebrews he went over the psalms he went over galatians and romans out of that outflow is produced a reformation of not only our theology but our lives and so in the family life there are several things i want to touch on first marriage and celibacy i'm sure you most of you are aware of this but Marriage was uh, forbidden for the priesthood, and so that was done away with. Also, celibacy just uh, was looked upon in the culture as a whole as a better option than marriage. Marriage was looked at as a drag, man. You got kids, you can't serve the Lord. Uh, you got to take care of your wife. Well, too bad. Uh, you can't serve the Lord. You know, and so there was uh, uh, doing away with that and an emphasis on the value of marriage, biblical Genesis through revelation and think of all the times paul talks about it think of all the times the old testament emphasizes genesis 3 genesis 1 through 3 we think about that marriage and luther specifically viewed marriage as companionship not something that was functional for producing children Uh, he says there is no bond on earth so sweet nor any separation so bitter is that which occurs in a good marriage. That's from Luther's own mouth. And so you see his change from his theological perspective working its way into his family life. Um, esteem sexual, they, they esteem sexual relations in marriage. Um, really, the Catholic Church had uh, established that uh, sexual desire 
even in marriage, was sinful and evil, and we needed to avoid it. And so, once again, we see a restoring of biblical principles to the family and esteeming sexual relations. Child-rearing was seen as a worthy uh, worthy goal. And especially, it was seen as foundational for society. You cannot have a society which functions biblically without a biblical education and a good education for your children done by the whole family. And so those are important things. They, they were informed by their theology. Uh, and lastly, the third thing um, that they focused on was a reform of culture and society. And so we go at the, the base level of Scripture. We move to our families, and then we move to a much broader um, context of culture and society. Uh, education is one thing they wanted to reform. Um, Luther, in 1523, he advocated for a universal and compulsory system of public education. And Why? Why, you ask? And here's what he says when asked that. The scriptures cannot be understood without the languages, and the languages can be learned only in school. And at that time, that was true. The educational uh, value of going to a school, now there are different options available today, so I'm not advocating any certain thing. But at that time, you must understand that um, the value of education was, in some senses, much greater. You could go from a man who was schooled, especially in the languages, and that's his focus. He, they were all big on the original languages. Um, he said that, and it wasn't, these reformers didn't, it wasn't just religious education that they were focused on. For example, Calvin he started a school called the Geneva Academy, and he displayed a love for liberal arts and the natural sciences. He called them a gift from God. And so he emphasized not only a, it wasn't a focused education that we must know only the scriptures, and that's all that's value for life and godliness. No, it was a much broader spectrum in which, yes, that's foundational, but then we can look at these other areas of education, liberal arts, sciences, as a gift from God if we properly understand them. And that's the issue today, I believe, if we properly understand them in light of God's word and what their functions should be. And so also another area, so we have education. We have politics. Um, in their writings, a separation of church and state was clear. And why might that be? Well, if you think about it, how had they lived? The power structure of the day. Pope had so much authority uh, invested in that one office, that one government, that he controlled everything. They said, no, you need to have a separation of church and state. Why? Why do we need to do that? Well, it's, it's biblical. They said each is ordained by God. The state has its function. The church has its function. But the state is necessarily limited by our theology, by the Bible. The descriptions, what, how is a state supposed to function? Well, you go to the Bible for that. But there should be a separation, they said. They, and, and this, and now this is debated in my readings, I found people who said, yes, okay, this, we can get this from them. No, we can't. But uh, I, would, I would side with those who said yes. There was an impetus for some type of democracy. And you see in, in their readings, in, in their writings, and, and in the reading I did that, the idea, why, why is democracy the best of all the bad choices? Well, because it places an emphasis on the depravity of man. Um, they believed that ultimate power corrupts ultimately. And so taking a good view on the depravity of man, that man is sinful, will only continually ever do evil. Even a regenerated man has the Adamic nature. So democracy, they believed, was the best way to proceed forward. And finally... 
economics. Um, each person is said to be called by God to their vocation. And I really, I don't think I can stress this enough because in our society today, the, the outworking of this is obvious and, and we don't even think about it twice. I mean, maybe we do. Maybe we look down at the garbage man on the corner who's getting our garbage and be like, man, thankful I'm not getting the garbage today. I'm going to my office. But really, it was a strict division and it was almost like a class. It was a class system. Um, those, those at the bottom were looked down upon. They, they had no worth because of their role. And, and I want to stress that Luther and, and the reformers, Calvin and, and the others, they restored a dignity to all of work that they said, I can honor God with all of my being all of the time, whether I work as a trash collector or whether I am a cardinal or a bishop or an elder in my church. That, those are all giving glory to God as long as I do them with the right motivation. And so there's a dignity in labor that is restored by the Reformation. Uh, I want to talk for a second about um, something we can learn um, from the Reformation. And I just want to point out again. Okay, one of those. Anyway, I want to point out again that Soli Deo Gloria is really the capstone. It's the final cause. And I know I've said this, but it's what these, found, these things that are foundational, all the other solas, uh, they come together and they build the point of it. What's the point of it? What's the point of all of this? Well, it's to live for the glory of God. And that's what the reformers emphasized. Uh, so we see a scriptural study, and just as I said in Luther's doctoral work, builds to theological insight which then can't stay just on paper. We just talked about it this morning. It can't stay just on paper. It must produce itself in action in our lives, in good deeds. Not, not because those good deeds have any value for our justification, but because they're outworkings of our love and our desire to please and give glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, reformation of theology necessarily brings about a reformation of action. And that's what I'm talking about today in the reforms that they did in their, in their desire to glorify God. What the reformers said, and I'm going to read a list of things that ties into the main point. They said, one way I glorify God with all of my being all the time is by correctly worshiping Him in my church context. One way I glorify God with all of my being all the time is by correctly governing my fellow believers. One way I glorify God with all of my being all the time is by establishing my family according to his principles and training up my children according to biblical principles. One way I glorify God with all of my being all the time is by educating myself and others in every area of life. One way I glorify God with all of my being all the time is by realizing human weaknesses and governing accordingly. One way I glorify God with all of my being all of the time is by realizing that my work is not better than others and appreciating that all of our jobs have worth and value in my Savior's plan. I want to touch very briefly, since time is running out, on A.W. Tozer's um, comments in pursuit of God. And I think this is where our society especially needs um, a Christian perspective. He talks about a separation between sacred and secular. And what he means is that we have our self-life and we have our life lived for God on, on the other side. We come to church and we act as we do here. But then when we go to work, we make different decisions. Then when we go to home, we make different decisions. In our education, in our, uh, in our, 
in our entertainment, in whatever aspect it may be. And he says that that is very dangerous, and I would agree. And you can see that, I think, in the Reformation and in their desire to change what had happened in the Catholic Church. Things were separated. They didn't give glory to God in every aspect because they didn't do it biblically. I think a good way for us to think of ourselves in this respect and in giving glory to God in every aspect is to live as ambassadors. And this is a biblical um, command. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, We therefore are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And what's the appeal? To be reconciled. It's the gospel. In what areas uh, do we need to give glory to God? In what areas are we doing this? There's a cliche, money, time, work. You hear those a lot. But I want to go to even a more foundational level. Yes, it's important that I give to the Lord. I'm not discounting that. Yes, it's important that my time is spent accordingly. Yes, sure, it's important that my work is done and it's done well. And it gives glory to God. However, I think uh, the most important foundational way is our thoughts, our minds, and our affections. So our thoughts slash minds, our affections, and our heart. Uh, Matthew 22 36 to 40 reads, Jesus on the most important commandment. He answers. And a and, uh, person asks, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our thoughts, that's our minds. Are my thoughts focused on myself or are they on God? What am I focusing on in my education, in every aspect of my life? What am I seeking to do? Am I seeking to bring honor like a reception on myself? Do I put out these things so that people may glorify me? Or or do they see me as an ambassador for the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ? My affections. What do I desire in life? So not only my thoughts, but then what do I desire in life? Do I desire for myself to get that honor? Do I think about that honor and then do I desire that honor? What the Reformers said is that we need to give the glory to God in every aspect of our life. Here, at our families, in our families, and at our work, in the culture, in the society, we need to live as the salt of the earth. We need to speak into them as an ambassador for Christ. Our character here is what the Reformers are aimed at. You see, it's their Reformation in in different things, but it's our character it's who do we give the glory to? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. So a fundamental question is answered by this sola and the Reformer's actions. How do I honor God with all of my being all of the time? So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do it all to the glory of God. Whoever speaks, let us speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let us serve in this body as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and in the day of eternity. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I just want to end with a cool little note, a side note I found in my research, and then I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. But Johann Sebastian Bach, famous composer, at the end of every composition he made, everyone, secular, whether it was a Brandenburg concerto, I believe is the one he wrote, or, or a, a religious um, composition for a church ceremony, he signed it S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, everyone. So I, I would encourage us. And see, that the cool thing about that is it's an expression of his theology in his work. See that? And that's what I want us to do. I want us to, at the end of our, at the end of our lives, really, what's our epitaph going to read? <laughs> is it going to be able to be signed SDG? Uh, I know I fail at that many times, and yet I would encourage us, and myself included, let us sign that at the end of every day, at the end of every hour, and especially at the end of our lives, um, will people say he heaped honor and glory on himself through his education, through his politics, through whatever it is? Or did he heap honor and glory? Was he ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, that's our challenge through this Reformation Sola. Uh, let's give thanks to the Lord. As we study and learn about those men, um, those men who produced um, great works for your glory, we're thankful that uh, you sent your son to die for us and that we may be your ambassadors. What a privilege it is. Thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, your clarity. Thank you for the truth. Um, and uh, pray that we would um, live for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.